Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you guys, um, the New York Times last week very unhelpfully published an anonymous op-ed uh, by, I guess who we call Lodestar now. Lodestar. Like an hour and a half after we finished recording. Very so rude. Why couldn't they just bump it up or wait till today? Well, it's because they're afraid of the competition that we they're, pose. That's true. All right, so who do so we think it is? Right, we've had a week. Who are your bets? I'm still going with Mnuchin. Mnuchin, okay. Interesting. You know, <sighs> Go for the stars. I say it's Mike Pompeo. Ooh. Or, no, I'm sorry. Rewind that. Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. Okay. <laughs> right, because she wrote two op-eds. One Which anonymous is exactly and the one kind an... of thing that Nikki Haley would do. One so denounce, devious. One denouncing herself and the other being herself. <laughs> yeah. That that actually is a mi- that's symbolic of something about the Republican Party right now, I think. But Shane, you can be your own lodestar. I can you don't. We don't actually need the identity of the person. We don't, because that person is all of us. The lodestar is in. No, you. that person is not <laughs> me. Not me. No. Thank you. I disown. I disallow. Putin. It's Putin. It's a false flag lodestar. False star. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Follow Your Lodestar edition. I'm Shane Harris. Um, I've used the term Lodestar. I think it is a perfectly serviceable term, like North Star, Guiding Star. Although it's going to be it's going to be like hiking the Appalachian Trail. It will, <laughs> it will never again mean what it it's used been to ruined mean. ruined for all time. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mike Pence. Mike Pence sure says Lodestar a lot, which is why I think if Vladimir Putin really did write this, wouldn't he know that? Yeah. Mm. But if you were gonna if you were gonna frame Mike Pence, I think you would do some other things along the way to do it Hmm. um for example there is no in the praise of our policy accomplishments uh there is no nod to the things that mike pence most cares about like freedom for christian minorities yeah there's not a single biblical quotation exactly it'd be so obvious then though wouldn't it no but if you were framing him you would want like if it were actually (laughs) dearest mother the president is so big and strong but sometimes so very crazy (laughs) i have chosen not to be alone with him in a room (laughs) that's probably for the best you might try to eat him Oh, God. All right. This week on the podcast. Oh, well, I am here, by the way, in the new jungle studio again, you guys. Woo-hoo! It didn't burn Wait, down. We didn't it's get any here. feedback, did we? Uh, we got, like we got one like one person on Twitter before I left Twitter who tweeted at us that the uh, audio the, was it, even worse. was even worse. Yeah. Uh, and well, so just to that person. <laughs> we're trying, guys, but you got to give us specific feedback on the audio. Worse? It's no. like this is actually a we, soundproof room. We reject all. 
all of that criticism. The, the new Jungle Studio is awesome. I will hear no criticism of all it. All right. All right. That's well, the authoritarian witness. So me and Ben and Tammy and Susan are all here. Uh, this week on the podcast, John Bolton comes out swinging in his first major speech as National Security Advisor. Is Russia behind a mysterious string of illnesses at U.S. diplomatic facilities? We know they wrote the op-ed. And Trump administration, yeah, those people who work for the Trump administration, met with coup plotters in Venezuela. Coup plotters? Coup plotters. Coup plotters. That's so 70s. Isn't it 70s? It's really retro. I'm liking that. We're going to save that for our last segment. Um, all right, let's start with this speech that John Bolton gave at the, uh, was that the, the yeah. Fed talk. The That's Federalist a, Society. A, the Federalist Society. They've been on the news a bit lately. Um, ben, let's start with what Bolton came out and said about the uh, the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Give us the quick scene setter, the background for that, and uh, why uh, this kind of declaration of war, it seems like, uh, on the ICC is so significant. So Bolton has wanted to have a war with the ICC since – the early days of the Bush administration when he was the architect of the policy of unsigning the Rome Convention that uh, that established it. And, uh, you know, since then, the United States has had a kind of odd relationship with the ICC, which is that we're not a member of it, but we kind of cooperate with it on certain matters and we've uh, been helpful to it on certain matters. And it's kind of a sort of, I don't know, a kind of detente. Uh, and it is not what Bolton has ever wanted in terms of the U.S.'s relationship with the ICC, which is uh, much more of a we will destroy you utterly from under the un, under the face of God kind of relationship. Uh, the ICC uh, made a terrible blunder in dealing with the United States in this regard, which is that they gave Bolton exactly what he wanted, which was an excuse to do this. Uh, and they did it by quite stupidly uh, suggesting that they might, you know, open an investigation in, in – or they did open an investigation in U.S. activities in Afghanistan. And that is, of course, precisely the nightmare scenario that has driven all of Bolton's anxieties on the point for, you know, it's 20 years now. And So they set him up pretty nicely with that. Indeed. And it was – you know, it's against their own rules and and charter, at least as I understand. I'm not an expert on international criminal law, but my impression is that when a country is capable of and willing to investigate allegations against itself, the ICC doesn't generally have jurisdiction over that country's conduct. And moreover, of course, the United States isn't a signatory to the treaty to begin yeah. with. And so there's really no basis for that. And even if we were, I can't imagine the United States military allowing an international court to prosecute U.S. forces. Exactly. But there is, I think, a legitimate question about how the United States should interact with an entity that would try and would purport to do that. I think Bolton's response uh, reflects not principally the provocation, but the war that he has for a long time wanted to fight against the institution. It's very different in color and character and substance from, as John Ballinger pointed out on Lawfare yesterday, it's very different from the tone of the way the Bush administration talked about the ICC. And uh, 
you know, it's a needless fight with uh, going to be a needless fight with a lot of countries that we're allied with. And, you know, I guess that means it's Wednesday. I mean, my question is, this is so obviously John Bolton's policy and not Donald Trump's policy. John Bolton is the third national security advisor we've seen in this administration alone. He doesn't appear to be having a great rapport with Donald Trump. So I think that a reasonable guess might be that his days are, are relatively numbered. You know, is this the kind of thing that we should actually view as a substantial shift in the administration in the administration's policy in a way that it is it really is going to have long term impacts? Or is this just John Bolton got a microphone? He's going to do what he can for however long he can hold on in this administration. And then everything is going to go back to exactly the way it was before. Yeah. So I think that this is a speech that John Bolton was probably writing in his head when the 14 year old John Bolton was lying in his bed at <laughs> night. <Pulling> his mustache. <laughs> Coming, right, growing that beautiful mustache and dreaming of the day when he would be able to set national security policy for the United States of America. He was writing a speech pulling the United States out of major international institutions. And this is one that we were never in or sort of halfway in, barely in, but not ever really in in the first place. So, you know, so I do think it's worth asking, what's the trigger for this speech right now? Why is this? Why is this what's happening? And I, I think it's correct to say that in a way, the court and the partisans of the court kind of set this up perfectly for a John Bolton who wants to give the speech by raising the prospect of investigation of U.S. activities in Afghanistan. But U.S. activities in Afghanistan are part of a NATO mission. So there's a multilateral dimension there that any normal, thoughtful American administration would be leaning on in responding to this. Um, no, it's just an excuse to give the speech. Likewise, the other uh, sort of concrete policy outcome from the speech, which is the closing of the Palestine Liberation Organization office in Washington is also something that I think the administration was getting ready to do anyway. They almost did it six months ago. There is a law on the books passed by Congress in 2015 calling, you know, for the administration to shut the PLO office in Washington if the PLO takes certain steps to bring Israel before the International Criminal Court. And um, while the PLO hadn't precisely done that, the White House wanted to close the PLO office anyway to punish the Palestinians for not engaging on the not yet announced Trump plan for Middle East peace. And so really, this is just this was a speech waiting for an occasion and it was gifted you know, these beautiful occasions. And so John Bolton gets to give the speech. But in terms of actual concrete policy implications for the United States, I'm not sure there are any. There is a sort of threat or implied threat that the United States would be willing to sanction prosecutors and judges of the ICC. And freeze their assets. And freeze too, it. Right? right. And which begs the immediate question of under what authority? <laughs> right. Would the U.S. government do that? And so I think basically this is a lot of hot air. And it allows a national security advisor who in some ways was kind of behind under the shadow of his president to leap out in front with something that has been his signature issue for a long time. So I don't think it is just a lot of hot air. And it may be hot air in on the Palestinian side. But with respect to the ICC, which is still a fragile institution and a new institution, it is an organization that has had a very hard time getting up 
and off the ground and actually doing very much, uh, there is a big difference between having a posture of benign neglect and cooperation occasionally with the United States and having a posture of active hostility. And, you know, for the National Security Advisor to suggest that the United States may not let people associated with the ICC into the United States, uh, you know, leaving aside whether there would be statutory authority to, you know, do financial sanctions, there's certainly the authority to not issue visas. And, you know, that's a, that's a, Big step. If you're a, you know, working for an international organization and you can't come into the United States, that's going to, you know, do a real damage to the organization. On the important subject of John Bolton's mustache, I have been reading uh, Bob Woodward's book, uh, and must and Bolton's mustache plays a remarkable role in the book. Um, so, it's a character of its own, so, really. It, well, it, it actually is the reason H.R. McMaster becomes national security advisor. So at the time that Flynn is fired and they have to replace him, they are interviewing the various candidates. And McMaster really negatively impresses the president as a pompous windbag who's you know, uh, not somebody he wants. And then Bolton comes in and the president really likes his answers, but he hates his mustache. And so the next day they bring them both back. And Woodward writes, I don't have the text in front of me, that, you know, his answers were still good, but his mustache was still there. And that's really why McMaster gets the job. Um, wow. Well, and so, but at the end of the day, Trump was able to overcome his hatred of the mustache to get the man who really seems to be his backstop. But for another but but the result of this is that the ICC had a an additional year's lease on life. Yeah, good for you, John Bolton. Everybody needs to stand for certain principles <laughs> and you did not jettison your mustache right. in order to become national security. And now that Burt Reynolds is gone, it's probably the best known mustache in American well, there is public Ty life. Cobb. Well, Ty Cobb's is now, pretty Oh, come sweet. on. I think John Bolton is better known in American public life than Ty Cobb. I have to just say on the ICC, though, that I do think this is a case where this even this administration, even John Bolton with his ideological predilections, may come to regret this move, just as despite all of their deprecations about the U.N. Human Rights Council, the Trump administration has embraced certain products of the U.N. Human Rights Council, like its report on the Rohingya genocide in Burma. There may well come a time when they're going to want the ICC to do things. It might be, you know, indicting Maduro. It might, I can imagine a set of cases in which they would wish to have the ICC as leverage over an international policy issue. And having done this, they're not going to have it. And it's precisely for that reason that previous U.S. administrations have been hedging in the way that Ben was describing. And it's a kind of repeated theme of the Trump administration that rather than maintaining options for policy down the line because the world is unpredictable and it's better to have lots of ways to gain leverage over adversaries and even over partners, they just throw leverage out the window constantly. And to me, this is just another example. So I can imagine that John Bolton's mustache has significant power, as I think we've just demonstrated here. It might even cause some people to have headaches 
feel nauseous, have ringing in their ears. Wow. It's a secret weapon. Where going with this we, we are really impressed with but, this segue. <laughs> but John Bolton's mustache is not what's making diplomats in Cuba and China sick. It's the Russians, maybe. <laughs> maybe. So <clears throat> NBC News had a very interesting story this week. Um, I think we've all probably been paying attention. We haven't talked much on the podcast about these very strange and really actually, not to be flipped, quite serious illnesses that yeah, have been- Yeah, really upsetting. Yeah, have been really befalling in our diplomatic personnel in Cuba and then also at facilities in China. Cause unknown, there has been some speculation, although I've heard this also batted down, that some kind of microwave technology could be involved. There's some scientists who are a little skeptical of that. But citing signals intelligence and unnamed sources, NBC reported that uh, the United States believes that Russia is likely the culprit, although they feel that they don't have uh, enough evidence right now to definitively say, and the State Department seemed to caution on this, but also at the same time not say it wasn't Russia. So, Susan, let me start kick this to you. Let's just say for sake of argument, it is Russia. And I suppose we could fill in the blank. It's, it is clearly some hostile power that's doing it. I don't think uh, there's at least no evidence yet these people are just spontaneously getting sick from natural causes or that there's a psychosomatic aspect to it. If it were shown that Russia were doing this, under normal circumstances, I guess, what would that constitute in terms of an act of aggression? How would you respond to it? And and how would we likely respond to it given the current nature of our relationship with Russia? Right. So this is a really bizarre story to untangle, in part because there's all this sort of medical information about what has happened and speculation about how it might have been, uh, you know, what the, what might be causing the symptoms. Is it microwaves? Is it, uh, you know, some sort of byproduct of, uh, of um, intelligence collection? Uh, and, and that's right. And then there's sort of the who does the, the uh, State Department believe is responsible for it. I think the initial assumption was that this was the actual injuries to the diplomat were accidental, right? Somebody was was using some form of technology that was having this effect without intending to actually hurt people. Um, the State Department, and I think they've now said this publicly, says that, no, this was an attack. Right, this, they they, use that they're word. Actually, this was a weapon of some sort that was used to target diplomats, uh, you know, for the purpose of hurting them. I, I think that's really incredibly serious. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it is part and parcel, although of a much lesser degree, to the extent that it is the Russians of what we've seen in the UK, uh, you know, with individuals being targeted with nerve agents, right? This is this really is crossing pretty remarkable lines, you know, and, and I think is one reason why we're seeing such a strong international pushback or international pushback minus the United States to, to the activity that we saw uh, in the UK. I do think that the the puzzle here is is motive, right? So mm-hmm. we've seen it in Cuba. Now maybe we're seeing it in China as well. Was this was this intended to harm U.S. Cuba relations because we were supposed to believe that Cuba, the Cuban government, was responsible for this? Is this now supposed to harm U.S. China relations? Like, why? I think is is the, is one of the biggest puzzles that I, I see. Right. Well, and I think there's an a, an added layer of question about motive when you just think about whatever kind of weapon. It must be that produces these effects. So these are effects that seem similar to a mild concussion, nausea, dizziness, hearing problems, vision disturbances. It's not completely disabling, or at least in the form that it's been used so far. Um, 
it's affected a wide range of people, so it's not clear how well targeted it is. So you wonder, what is the use of such a weapon in general? Unless like they have the dial set at two and they're just doing like a live fire exercise. But if you set the dial at 10, like it might actually disable somebody. I can't quite figure out what is the use of this instrument in the first place, if indeed it is an instrument, much less what the intended purpose or outcome is in terms of these relationships. It seems to me that, you know, if they were using Cuba as a testing ground or experience, I mean, that just makes sense to me because the Russians have free run in Cuba. And so it's an easy place where they can target an adversary service, if you will, with, with both deniability and impunity. So both Tamara's point and Susan's point raise what I think is the most interesting aspect of this, which is that we know almost nothing about what has happened here, right? So Susan raises the 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 who question. We think it may be the Russians, but we haven't not enough to make an accusation, let alone a public accusation. We don't really know what has happened. We don't know exactly what this weapon is. There was some talk early that it was a sonic device of some sort. Now people are floating microwave, but uh, there's a lot of people who don't buy that. What if it's a dog whistle? Or, a, or a, <laughs> a, a, an EMP. Right? <laughs> like, uh, the EMP people right, will the, be avenged. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, there's a... Um, and we also don't know why. And so something weird has happened that's affected our diplomats on two continents that appears to be an attack of some sort. And we cannot figure out who's doing what, how, or why. And that's a very peculiar situation. Usually in intelligence, uh, covert action, tradecraft, you have like some sense at least of, of what's happening. I do think if it is the Russians, uh, which it sounds like it very well may be, that has to be understood in the context of uh, the poisonings in England and the broader efforts at subversion of democratic processes in lots of countries, including this one. I think it has to be understood as the Russian state saying or Vladimir Putin saying you know, we understand that we cannot compete in the normal fashions in which states compete with one another economically, you know, politically, but we really can, you know, put needles in your ankles in lots of different ways in 10, mm. you know, 10 different ways over, mm. o- over time and space, and we can make our presence felt. So just another dimension of this asymmetric power competition that we've been talking about in a lot of different ways. I mean, yeah, exactly. I do think it's worth noting that, you know, to the extent it is Russia, you know, there, there has been a larger harassment campaign against diplomats in right. Moscow. In Actually, Moscow. you know, it was a little bit of a, um, overlooked in, in the uh, sanctions that the Obama administration issued right at the end of 2016. But actually, one of the reasons why we sanctioned Russian officials was because of the harassment of diplomats in Moscow, including another very strange incident um, by which two U.S. diplomats 
Democrats uh, or U.S. State Department employees basically were drugged in a in a bar. You know, were given some sort of you know rehypnol or something like that, something that uh, that caused them to black out. Although, um, fortunately, there they were with colleagues who were able to keep them safe uh, for that period of time. So it is sort of to the extent it is Russia, it is part of you know this sort of larger assault uh, on diplomats, even that we've seen in Moscow. You know, but I do think it's worth unpacking just to sort of underscore the level of uncertainty here, unpacking the language used to describe signals, the the alleged signals intelligence. Mm, So they're saying that the way we have this information is because we heard somebody talk about it or we found some sort of communication. And yet they're using terms like U.S. personnel consider Russia to be the main suspect. The evidence is not yet conclusive electromagnetic weapons were likely used, right? This is the kind of thing that if it was in an intelligence assessment would have a low confidence marking. Right. Might, you know, I, I sort of suspect this might actually not even be intelligence that was distributed right, yet, right? So, you know, this is this is describing intelligence of such a preliminary level of analysis by the time that something is reaching the White House, for example, or going from the intelligence community into the State Department. Most of the time, you you have a, a much higher degree of sort of confidence and sophistication than than we would see in this case. So I, I do think that's one reason to sort of, you know, take this not with a grain of salt, but with sort of a, a, a foot on the brake of, of how uncertain the United States appears to be. And what, is it, what do you think that tells us, too? Because that's, I, that's so interesting. I mean, because I was, I was like you kind of seizing on the conditional language of it and thinking, well, who's providing the leak of not entirely clear signals intelligence that maybe means this and maybe not that. Does it? Do you think we can discern anything about the motives or the source of the information based on how raw it is? I mean, I don't want to overly speculate here, but it does appear as though Congress has been briefed on this issue and not to point fingers, but no. to point fingers, like Congress is yeah. a, a little bit of a leaky uh, institution, especially whenever there's sort of weird puzzles like this. And so, you know, this is not something that is clearly coming from within the intelligence right. community for some sort of reason. You know, maybe it got distributed around more broadly, or maybe it is sort of congressional staffers. And also that might be driving part of the uncertainty here, that you actually have people that are being briefed, you know, sort of, you know, one level below, or that there's some sort of close hold information here. And so we actually are, through the game of telephone, relying on people who themselves only have a, a part of the information and then are conveying it, you know, with their levels of uncertainty. Also, on that, in that regard, I'm sure that the State Department uh, has very good reason to be alerting people who are stationed either in Cuba, which most people have been withdrawn from, but also people in China and other people, you know, what precautions, if any, they should take or what, you know, and once you distribute information to a large number of people by way of helping diplomats know what, you know, they should and shouldn't be doing, what they do and don't have to worry about, uh, that word can get around relatively broadly just because of the number of people. It goes well beyond the intelligence community at that point. Yeah, although in this case, I would say they actually know so little. They're still so speculative in terms of how this happened, (laughs) how these people got sick, Um, or what the mechanism was. And so I doubt that they actually have anything actionable that they can tell the diplomatic community 
who's stationed in these two posts or in any other posts. I mean, when it was just in Cuba, you could say, well, maybe just don't go to Cuba, you know, or let's draw down our personnel from Cuba. But now that it's appeared elsewhere and, you know, the, the embassy in Beijing is a huge operation. And I actually think that that points to one long-term consequence that may or may not be intended um, by the use of such a weapon, if indeed it is a, a directed and intentional weapon, which is that, you know, over time, if the U.S. government doesn't have answers to how this happened, how to treat these people, how to prevent it from happening again, then first of all, people, especially diplomats with families, are not going to want to go to these posts at all. And secondly, they won't responsibly be able to send people into these posts. And particularly, it's not only U.S. Foreign Service officers here. It's people representing other agencies like FBI um, or DHS and let's not forget, probably a bunch of CIA people. And I think the NBC report does say that multiple CIA officers appear to be in this group. Right. And so, you know, if we're thinking about motive, Susan, it's possible that one motive is just to, tr- you know, additionally squeeze the American intelligence gathering apparatus in mm-hmm. these places. One other uh, related point, though, is that to the extent that the intelligence community becomes and the State Department becomes uh, fully convinced that this is Russian in origin, whatever it turns out to be. Uh, You know, it's one thing for the president to be standing up there with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki when he's just interfering when in our he's electoral just process. interfering into our electoral process <laughs> and killing his own journalists right you know. it's a bit of another thing to, to be to be making nice in that kind of public way to somebody who's actively attacking your own staff yeah like physically attacking your own staff well it is a mystery and it makes me long for the old days of Good old-fashioned espionage and plotting and, and rice-tipped umbrellas. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say coup d'etats, but old school, old school, it's old school. So the Trump administration <laughs> went old school with this one. Uh, it was a fascinating report from the New York Times. I'll just read the lead because they really sum it up nicely here. Uh, the Trump administration held secret meetings with rebellious military officers from Venezuela over the last year to discuss their plans to overthrow President Nicolas Maduro according to American officials and a former Venezuelan military commander who participated in the talks. And this former commander is a, a clearly a big source for the story. Establishing a clandestine channel with coup plotters in Venezuela was a big gamble for Washington, given its long history of covert interventions across Latin America. Many in the region still deeply resent the United States for backing previous rebellions, coup plots in, and coup plots in countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, Brazil, and Chile, and for turning a blind eye to the abuses that military regimes committed during the Cold War. That is all true, and made me wonder. The first thing was, why on earth would we be meeting? With coup plotters. Now, I know why on earth would we is often a question we ask about a lot of things going on lately. But, Tammy, this this one seemed to me really – I couldn't tell if this was just some bizarre boneheaded idea or was this more, well, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, we might as well meet with the guys and keep open a line of communication and see what they're all about. Um, you know, obviously, we are not friendly to the Maduro administration. The coup plotters did want us to provide encrypted radio equipment which they would have, I guess, used to hatch the coup. So we would have been providing, you know, arguably material support. But, I mean, do you see this as something just like crazy and boneheaded? Or is there a plausible, smart explanation for why we just took the meetings? Sure. 
Look, I don't think this is an easy one. I mean, given the history, you can certainly see this in the New York Times and think, oh my God, what were they thinking? At the same time, the collapsing state of Venezuela, the refugee flows out of Venezuela, the impact on the economy of the hemisphere, the impact on the global energy trade. I mean, Venezuela is a big deal. It matters. And the fact that the state is falling apart under horrific governance and brutal repression and a lot of people are suffering matters. It matters to international security. And so if a group of people within the government um, find their way to American diplomats and say, hey, we want to talk to you about the future of our country. From that perspective, I think it would be irresponsible not to take the meeting. And in the story is quoted Roberta Jacobson, who was one of the most senior members of the American Civil Service working on U.S. foreign policy. She was assistant secretary for Latin America. Um, and she, you know, and she said, of course you establish a back channel uh, and hear what they have to say. And I do think it's worth noting in the story that, number one, there was, in fact, an interagency policy discussion within the administration about how to respond to this approach. That's good. We don't often see that from the Trump administration. They're learning. <laughs> Let's hope. Or He's maybe growing in office. Yeah, or maybe this was just kept at a low low level enough that it could be dealt with in an interagency way because the principles probably wouldn't, you know, right. have right. a cover. So that's number one. Number two, in that interagency discussion, they discarded, rejected the idea of sending a CIA officer, which would have made it a lot worse right. in terms of the reaction in the hemisphere. And so at the end of the day, they sent a diplomat. And they instructed the diplomat, be in listen-only mode. And it sounds from the story as though that's what the diplomat did. And clearly, the the sources, the Venezuelan military officers who are sources for the story, are grumbling to the reporter about the fact that the U.S. diplomat was just in listening mode. So I actually think all things considered, it's not as bad as it looks. But, you know, it really fails the Al Cayman test in terms of Latin American politics. Just having this headline in the paper is not good for the U.S. I'll make one more quick point, which is that the fact that these military officers were in a position where the only way they felt they could communicate with the major hem hemispheric power about what's going on in their country and what they might want to do about it was to approach a U.S. embassy in Europe, you know, this sort of indirect uh, Hail Mary reach out. It's partly a consequence of the extent of American sanctions and diplomatic uh, distancing from Venezuela. And so you can understand those sanctions and so on as a way of putting pressure on a horrible government to change its course. But it comes at a cost which is that we don't have eyes and ears on the ground in any meaningful way, and we don't have the ability to see inside this government, except in a situation like this that makes us look like we're doing something really subversive and surreptitious. So there is one name that I'm surprised not to see mentioned anywhere in this article, and that's John Kelly. Before John Kelly became the Secretary of Homeland Security, he was the commander of Southern Command. And he, you know, his Southcom experience, he has talked a lot about having these very developed views on Latin America, Latin American policy, how it, imp how it impacts 
Iraq's, uh, you know, U.S. security posture. And so it, it is surprising, and maybe his name is just omitted, you know, but if he's if he's not involved, that actually is sort of surprising that you would have someone, you know, who cared that much and sort of had that strong of a view on the region and has publicly had that strong of a view on the region and yet is has no hands on this whatsoever. You know, Unless I, he was a source for it. Possibly. Possibly. Although it looks like this was written very much from – Venezuelan. So. Fr- yeah, yeah, from South America. Ernesto Londoño, who's one of the two – Reporters on the byline is based in Brazil, so I mean, you know, I do think that there is one way that we might see be seeing Kelly's fingerprints on it, or at least instincts on it, and that's that from the very outset, the Trump administration has been talking about this as a military issue. They talked about military options and not as a humanitarian crisis. And at the core, that's what it is, right? It's people who are starving to death. I think I saw a statistic earlier this week that the average Venezuelan has lost seventeen pounds in My the past God. year. I mean, you know, this. Really really is just an overwhelming humanitarian crisis. And the food is just unbelievably expensive when it's available. Right. And and they are and and yet our uh, our sort of interactions on this issue is all at the level of sort of what is our what are our military options and and we aren't talking at all about what are our humanitarian obligations. Mm. How right. is this or, a case in which meeting our humanitarian uh, obligations helps our security equities, you know, in the region considering how close of a neighbor this is? Right, but we're also not talking about what are our diplomatic options. And why, you know, this is an administration that probably would never contemplate uh, a real effort at multilateral engagement over the fate of Venezuela. Now, to be fair, um, the Obama administration tried. The Organization of American States has a real allergy to American intervention in the domestic politics of Latin American states. But at the same time, they all recognize that the collapse of Venezuela is a danger to them. There is an incredible opportunity for multilateral cooperation on Venezuela, but it doesn't, I see no evidence anyway, that the Trump administration tried that. And like you, Susan, I'm struck that the response to this story, you know, from someone as august and thoughtful as Richard Haas, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, was... Well, if you don't like supporting a coup, do you have a better idea? You know, (laughs) as if there are no other policy options on the table than military intervention or supporting a military's takeover. Yeah. So I I just want to say a few words in defense of a coup in Venezuela. I I was hoping you would. I I mean, whether the United States should be involved in supporting a coup is a hard question, I suppose. But right now... This is what this is should be the richest country in South America and people are starving in it. There's no medicine. And by the way, people have used repeatedly their democratic options of protests and elections, and those are not available to them anymore because uh, the regime has become quite brutal and uh, is really willing to imprison and beat and kill people. And manipulate elections. And and cheat in elections. And so, you know, the normal things that you say, uh, hey, these are your democratic remedies, which were, by the way, that was the right answer under Hugo Chavez for a long time, where there actually were these elections. And, you know, he was a he was a nasty demagogue and and had a sort of authoritarian personality and ambitions. But there actually were elections and people, uh, you know, the Venezuelan opposition kind of failed to dislodge him. At this point, those options are not there anymore. And I do think it is reasonable at this point to think about if you're 
a average member of the public overthrowing this government and if you're a member of the military overthrowing this government and i i don't say that lightly but it just doesn't it doesn't strike me that that's a is something that we should that should be off the table to go back to tamara's original point uh given that reality if a group of people approach you as the state department or the united states and say hey we're we're thinking about doing this it strikes me as quite silly not to take that meeting quite irresponsible not to take the meeting hear what you're going to hear what people have in mind make an assessment of what the prospects for success are so you know my only question i mean i have a lot of questions but i don't really know what's upsetting about this story. But isn't the reason why you don't take that meeting because you don't want a a headline in the New York Times that reads, Trump administration discussed coup plans with rebel Venezuelan officers, that to the extent that Maduro is attempting to paint this picture of all the opposition to him is not actual, you know, democratic opposition. It's just the United States once again coming in, you know, and and interfering in Latin American affairs. Doesn't this play right right into their hands, you know, and God forbid, it's, you know, this is not the most competent administration. You know, if it's a trick or a trap and you end up being recorded having this kind of conversation, this is the kind of thing that could be really, really incendiary and inured to the benefit of exactly someone like Maduro. Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think in addition to that, the question of whether a coup is, you know, one of the only remaining viable options for for desperate patriotic Venezuelans, that's a question for Venezuelans. The question for the United States is, under what conditions does that become a not terrible option for American policy, okay? There's no reason to assume that a military-led regime, just because it's a military-led regime and it's not Maduro, will be able to turn around the horrific conditions in Venezuela. It would only be able to do so if it were able to attract a lot of regional and international support. Any government in Venezuela, in order to address those conditions, is going to need a lot of support. And so the question for the United States is not only how do we feel about a coup, it's under what conditions would a successor government be better than the current government? And Under what conditions would the United States be willing to contribute to making that possible? And in order to get to that, you I think you actually would need to have conversations with people inside Venezuela who would want a different government. But you would want to I mean, I'm speaking, you know, if we were starting from zero here and constructing a policy, the United States would want to have a series of discussions with a range of Venezuelan political actors and try and bring them together around a common core of principles to guide a successor government. And maybe if you're comfortable with that, then maybe you would support a coup. But, you know, the the distance between this meeting, which was in any case, just a very, very preliminary information gathering meeting, and that decision is many, many months and a lot of diplomatic work. And to me, what it points out is the lack of any attention from the Trump administration and its policy, at least on this issue, to soft power. I mean, 
Yes, there are still democratic actors in Venezuela. They are suppressed. They are oppressed. Many of them are imprisoned. Some of them are in exile. An American government that paid attention to soft power would be inviting them here. Members of the congressional uh, committee chairman would be inviting them to testify. We'd be putting them on Sunday talk shows. U.S. government officials would be talking about them. None of that is happening. And so in the absence of any broader policy that demonstrates that we give a crap about the future of Venezuela, a meeting like this, if it goes beyond information gathering, is far more likely, I would argue, to be harmful than helpful. Yeah. So I I think we're talking past each other. I am certainly not making an argument for not having a Venezuela policy. And I am not making an argument for the only engagement you have with the subject being meeting with coup plotters. But as I understand this story, this was a situation in which there was outreach by a particular group of people through a U.S. embassy in Europe. And the question on the table was not, do you develop a giant Venezuela policy with lots of soft power. The question on the table was, do you meet with this group of people? And it sounds to me like they handled it reasonably responsibly. And I don't have a problem with anything I read in the story about what they did. I think going in a sort of listen-only, sending a diplomat in a listen-only mode and not providing support strikes me as a pretty responsible thing to do. And by the way, if there were a coup tomorrow in Venezuela, I would be very pleased. (laughs) If there were a coup tomorrow in Venezuela, I might allow myself a moment of relief and then I would have a lot of anxiety about what would come next. But I I agree with that, (laughs) but I would start with the moment of relief. I think the... The one thing I have to add is that I can imagine all of all of the people out there in listener land who do know about American uh, policy toward Venezuela, and especially folks who are working in the government who would probably, if they could, be tweeting at us right now saying, but we have a Venezuela policy, and I'm sure we do. And so I think we we also just have to admit that this is a tough one. It's a really hard one. It's a hard one partly because of the legacy of American policy in Latin America. It's a hard one because of the nature of this horrific autocratic regime. And it's made even harder by the fact that we have a Trump administration that discards 80% of the tools in its foreign policy toolbox. All right. Let's move on to object lessons. I'll go first. Okay. My object lesson is actually something out of Bob Woodward's book. I don't think has gotten enough attention, and I thought it was pretty cool. I think Bob John Bolton's mustache. No, sadly, <laughs> you're that's, obsessed. That is it's an object. In, that is in, plenty in, in, in the book. book. No, the very first right after the dedication, and then this quote from from the scene setter quote, the beginning of the book from Trump on page three is something called author's personal note, where Woodward goes on at great length with a what he calls a heartfelt thanks to Evelyn M. Duffy, my assistant on five books that have covered four presidents. And goes on to completely just praise her uh, research work and at the end says, Evelyn brought her endless good sense and wisdom serving as full collaborator and in the spirit and with the level of effort of a co-author. I thought that was pretty cool, actually. It kind of made it me wonder. It does beg a question. Why wasn't she on the cover <laughs> with you? Which, I mean, there's probably publishers had reasons and maybe don't want to go that far. But uh, I just, you know, I think oh, it's, it's how Scott Armstrong got his start. And, is that right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bob, if you're listening – and you're going to say that, 
Uh, you should put the person's name on the cover with you. Yeah, you should. I look. I that, that's debatable. I thought it was pretty cool that he actually said it. Um, Evelyn, you also hear her voice on the recording with Trump, which is uh, oh on the phone. She's mm-hmm. on it cool. too, and she because he actually asked her for basically like you know like back me up on this, Evelyn. But don't we have like something or other? Like how many hours? Like, she's like, yeah, that, that that's right. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's pretty neat. Uh, researchers are often unsung heroes uh, to journalists, and I thought it was pretty cool that Woodward actually. Said she had the level was the level of a co-author, even if she's not actually the co-author. So, yeah. well, he has a reputation for for hiring great research yep. assistants and sending them on to great things. Yep. Can I confess something about this book? Mm-hmm. Most of it's really boring. <laughs> oh. can, can I confess that I found that to be the case with most of these first rough drafts of history? I I don't know. Like I, you know, the parts that are interesting are really riveting and but a very large amount of it is just this kind of indiscriminate policy debate over some issue that may be important if but i i'm actually having trouble detecting what the overall narrative thread of the story Story that he's telling His book, us. I think Woodward's books are often like that, though. They, they, um, they think they tend to me to read sometimes more like a collection of newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, look, it's been a criticism of Woodward that he's you know, one of the most brilliant reporters of his generation, but he's not that great of a writer. Which I mean, maybe, I, I agree with you that a lot of the books don't have narrative thread. You can almost pick them up chapter by chapter, but in the level of detail, I think they're quite riveting. So probably Evelyn's doing. I have an object as well. Um, It is a job announcement that we put up on Lawfare. Um, We are hiring uh, a new uh, fellow who is going to be a fellow at Brookings for a two-year fellowship uh, working with Lawfare on congressional issues, basically. So um, we have pretty good coverage of the executive branch. We have pretty good coverage of the uh, the judicial branch. Um, We have felt like uh, Congress wasn't getting enough attention for some time. And so now we're actually going to bring someone on board to, to really do that kind of deep dive on legislative policy, national security issues that are coming out of Congress. Um, This will be a completely great job. I know because it is modeled on my job, which is completely great. Um, So if you, rational security listener, are out there, um, know a lot about Congress, are interested in national security issues, think that it sounds like we're having a good time, and we are, um, you should apply to this job because it is going to be really great. Very good. And you better like podcasting. You better love podcasting. Love. Ben. My object lesson this week is Twitter. Oh. I'm not on it. Oh. He's smiling as he says this. <laughs> my eyes are gentlemen. rolling. <laughs> there you go. That's my object lesson. I'm not on Twitter anymore. They can go read your feed for why you're not on Twitter anymore. Yeah, I'm just, you know. I'm I just... think, though, Ben, you are on Twitter because you said you were going to still do certain things. You just weren't going to read the replies. No. So I, I reserve the right to continue uh, baby cannon firing. Uh-huh. I reserve the right to tweet anything I want to say, but it's going to be from here on in all one-way signal. I'm not reading the mentions. I'm not engaging with anybody. And I'm training myself, and the last 48 hours have been fun in that regard, that if I read something in the newspaper, I don't need to share it with anybody. I don't need to come up with something witty to say about you know, whatever I happen to have just seen, if somebody else tweets something that I, you know, think is good, I don't need to retweet it with a 
Uh, no retweet love even better? I, I mean, I can if I want, but I don't need to. You don't need and to. Just, like, you can quit any time. Teaching myself. You can quit anytime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue. Yeah. Um, yeah let's say, see if this lasts past the next news. Day. I have never regretted a tweet that I didn't send. Yeah. So it's so probably true. a good lesson for all of us. Yeah. So you're a model of restraint, Ben. Hey, <laughs> I said I wasn't going to do it. It's That was uh, almost 72 hours ago now. Nice. And, and I have not even come close. We'll celebrate one week clean when we get together. We'll get you a, a <laughs> Pin. <laughs> <laughs> a little pin. <laughs> oh my God. Um, all right. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the show. And Ben will not be tweeting about the podcast. Ben, you're not even going to tweet about our podcast. I will tweet the podcast. Okay, okay. fine. Well, Maybe. Thank God for that. Next week. Uh, as a housekeeping. Susan is still a social media superstar. I think so. Well, she's still there. Housekeeping note, by the way, next week we will be joining you on Thursday, not on Wednesday. That's right. For the holiday. But that brings us to the end of this week. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare homepage. Just Google it. The URL changes like every week. Does not. Is anyone even going? <laughs> like, who listens to podcasts online? Just I would love to, to know, actually. Phone, like, tweet us if you person. actually go to a po- to a website to listen to a podcast. It is very. I'm not judging. It I just is honestly very want to know important you are. to have a homepage for the podcast because that is where the record of the podcast. That is it's true. Our archive. That basically. is true. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Don't bother looking for Ben. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. show is edited and produced by Jen Patya Howell. Music this week by John Bolton's Mustaches new band. Oh. <laughs> what trigger. instrument does the mustache play, do you think? <laughs> Hair trigger is the band. <laughs> I think it plays like washboards and chains. <laughs> Like, I like spoons. This. Yeah, and like spoons. bones I just on drums. I like, you know, Sousa music in his head all the time. <laughs> He's always playing a march. Have you, have you guys ever seen the movie Diva? No. There's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful French uh, 80s kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of, it's a wonderful movie. But there's this psycho killer in it who uh, kills people with ice picks. And at the end of the movie, he's always listening to, you know, a Walkman of some kind. And at the end of the movie, he's killed. And somebody, he's this punk character with very short cropped hair. And they pull out the earphones and it's like this calm polka music. Um, And so you're expecting it to be something thrashy, metally, and he's just just listening to polkas, and that's John Bolton. I have a feeling I'm going to hear about this movie when I get home, because my husband's either seen it or is going to rent it. I was going to say, this is the first time anyone has ever said, Shane, have you seen? And the answer is, but no. It's a wonderful film. He'll he'll, he'll watch it, because I know he's listening now. Uh, And you're going to be played out now with Sophia Yan, who really does our music. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, And Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We will see you next Thursday. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.